Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 38. We are still in our sequential walking through of the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we continued to build the foundation that started back in Matthew five seventeen through 21, where Jesus was reiterating that he was not here on earth to abolish uh, or get rid of the Torah, the commandments that God had given Israel from the beginning, that he was here to correctly interpret them, to show the true meaning of them. And then he's been on a long tome ever since then, showing examples of what that true nature of those commandments are that has been lost among God's people over time and he does it in such a way too that he's bringing up a lot of modern social problems that are going on everything from the way that Jewish people look at divorce how flippant they were treating it and how Jesus was kind of doubling down and showing how much God cares about marriage and even calling out the men um, within marriage with the lust aspect of it that Normally in Jewish culture, it was the women who they were calling out. So I just love the way that Jesus is using the Torah to show that it spans across all time and culture, uh, no matter where or who you're at. So, and we're ready to go forward from there. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus, like Moses, was humble, but he was bold. Yeah. (laughs) Those things are not contradictory. So. It's good. All right, well, let's go ahead. Uh, Luke actually makes a a brief appearance here for a couple of verses. We may as well, you know, give a shout out to Luke because we've been in Matthew for a while. (laughs) Uh, But I'm going to go ahead and read the little bits from Luke because it's kind of short, and then we'll do the Matthew and let it sort of be the, the main text that we work from. Luke chapter 6, verses 29 and 30 says this. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Well, that was pretty tough, and Matthew's just got more to say. So let's go there. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay. This is starting to sound like some real-life practical stuff right now, huh? Yeah. 
Yeah. So first of all, uh, let's get this part, the, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Everybody's kind of familiar with that, but I think often we get a kind of a wonky version of it, okay? So if you were curious, you could go look in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24 and surrounding, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 20, surrounding, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21 and surrounding. It was in there. Now, today, I think uh, among scholars, etc., this this is popularly called the law of retaliation. And it carries with it this idea of retributive justice, sort of that I don't get mad, I get even attitude, right? Or just just personal vengeance. And when you read it, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, well, okay, it's understandable, but it was never, let's say, intended quite that way, and it was never practiced that way in Israel in the courts. And I know I've said it before, but it just makes me laugh, so I'm going to say it again. Daniel Lancaster says... They weren't poking out eyes and knocking out teeth. And that, that's such a great phrase to remember because it, it shows you how silly it is to read it that way. Okay. The best possible way to understand this principle, uh, it's a popular American phrase. Let the punishment fit the crime. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Let the punishment fit the crime. All along, judgments were mostly monetary or, or maybe like similar resources, like if we're talking about animals or uh, 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 field, grain, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's important that we, we at least start here. Like, let's get this foundational thing right so that we, we start from the right place. That way we can actually understand the illustrations that follow. Okay? Now, he says, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, many hear that and they mistakenly read what they hear, what they think it means is that they should, you know, just let the bad guys do whatever they want. Be a pacifist. But that's not what this this sentence is saying. It'd be so much better if they wrote it in English and, and this is the way we should read it and understand it. Do not return evil for evil. When it says do not resist the evil one, think of like magnets, how they push back against each other. Don't return evil for evil. And, you know, this is uh, Jesus's life. It was, of course, a good picture of this, Samuel. A little side note, uh, 1 Peter 2.23. Why don't you read uh, the first part of that for us? When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. Yeah, and that's the picture. Do not resist the one who is evil. Okay, so if you're not going to resist, and then he's given some some specific examples. All right, so if anybody slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. Again, this isn't about just passively accepting mistreatment in any and all circumstances. Again, it's, it's not being a pacifist. You can, and we might even say should, act in self-defense or in defense of others. And I've got another example. Even Jesus himself, well, he did, it wasn't like self-defense, but he protested when he was struck unjustly. Samuel, why don't you read that to us from John chapter 18, verse 23. 
Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Yeah, right? He didn't just sit there and take it. Now, he willingly gave up his life. He went all the way to the cross. It was all a big deal. But that's very different from just being a pacifist. That was purposeful, willful. He did that. He he meant that. And by the way, most people don't know this, this whole concept of striking someone on the cheek in in Jewish law, this this was like a real thing. And I don't know if this spilled over to Roman law or not. It's kind of questionable, whatever. But there's this idea if you strike one someone on the cheek, it actually came with a very specified legal fine. And by the way, the fine was different if you got backhanded versus if you got, you know, palm slapped or forehanded, whatever you want to call it, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this was like a real, real practical thing that they were talking about. But the point that's behind this, what's he saying? Well, you know, when someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other also. This is about voluntarily foregoing your own rights and privileges. So don't take him to court. Don't get the fine that is due you. Instead, offer up the other cheek. Could be a lot of reasons for doing that. Could I mean, let's not get passive aggressive out there, but you know, it's it's a thing. And this also, I just just want to say this out loud. This is a very personal thing. I decide for me, not for you. And you don't decide for me. This isn't for courts of law either. The point is, each of us should, in whatever way, however we can see to do this, the cheek example is you return good for evil instead of returning evil for evil. So you're not resisting the evil one. And this just is, it's more of that, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Here's how you do it. Yeah, I really like a teaching that Marty Solomon uses in his Baymod Discipleship podcast where he points out that more than likely the type of slap that is being mentioned here is the very degrading kind, which is the back of the hand. And in this situation... If in the Matthew version, if it says if you if you get slapped on the right cheek, so if you if you think about the only way that someone could backhand you slapped on the right cheek would be with their right hand. And yeah. Marty is saying that in response to like showing out like addressing this injustice by turning the other cheek, it would it would put the person in a corner to make the decision to use their left hand. And in Jewish culture, like using your left hand w- would have been unheard of because that's that like, most of the time that would have been the hand that people would have used to clean themselves when they were using the bathroom. I mean, yeah. it, it would have taken the insult far, far greater. Um, and so I just like that little detail to say that as a person who's following god's mission like we should in a way that still upholds compassion and mercy be able to point out that injustice without rising to the same level that they are as well and letting god be the ultimate judge yeah if i could say it it's sort of a cheeky way (laughs) of pointing out the injustice hmm (laughs) 
very nice. I had to do it. It's, yeah. it's a thing. It's a dad thing. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, that, you know, so turning the cheek, but he's not done there. He goes on. We got the part about the tunics and the cloaks. And I thought this was kind of interesting. If you look at Luke, he says, if he takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. Matthew says, if he takes your tunic, let him have your cloak. It goes both ways. So I figured we better, we better try and talk about this a little bit. So at least we understand what's going on. So first of all, let him have your cloak as well. Your tunic. Okay. This was your undergarment. It's it's probably the closest thing we could relate it to today would be like a, a shirt or maybe a t-shirt, something like that. And for what it's worth, generally speaking, your average kind of person may have had a few of these. You may have had a few tunics. Your cloak, on the other hand, was the outer garment. And that was often used as a covering at night. And, and well, let's just say it was multi-purpose. They used that for many things. It was more expensive, and you probably only had one of those. And so on one hand, uh, let's talk about Jewish courts. You can see that the courts could literally take the shirt off your back. That, that, that's something that this whole taking your cloak, taking your tunic, whatever, this could be in relation to the courts. But the Torah prevented keeping someone's cloak overnight. That's the outer garment, the one they may be used as a blanket at night, that kind of thing. So that's an also uh, just a very interesting picture. And if you know those two things, you can actually look at both of those verses, even though they're like opposites of one another, and you can work out, I'll leave that for you to do, you can work out how that actually makes sense, even in both directions. It's kind of weird. But anyway, so there's your tunic and cloak thing. The point is, uh, or at least a point that we can take from this, it's the same principle as we were talking about with the cheek. You may deserve to be treated differently or to demand justice. Hey, you can't keep my cloak overnight. But you choose to respond, I don't know, some form of goodness, something not repaying evil for evil instead. So it's, it's just a cool, cool picture. Again, his next example is just like it. And this is the one about, uh, you know, uh, if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him too. Well, the common story here is it's Roman soldiers. They could require bystanders to carry a load for a mile. And, I mean, let's just step away from that for a second. Any type of forced labor, it's just a violation of basic human rights. So, it would be with the soldiers. It would be just under any normal circumstance. But again, we see that same principle carrying through. You may deserve to be treated differently. You can't make me carry it more than a mile. Or you may be able to demand justice, but instead you choose to respond. Not evil for evil, but some form of good instead. And so you offer to go another mile. Yeah, and another thing from Marty's lesson is that he says that those Roman soldiers, if they were in an area where that law was being enforced heavily, they would potentially, the soldier would have gotten in trouble if they let the person continue carrying their bag, their pack, for longer than one mile. And so this is mm. another way that you're kind of bringing the injustice to the forefront of this person's mind to give them another alternative to choose differently to like give them an opportunity to repent 
by right. by saying that or well, you're actually kind of practicing radical generosity at the same time as bringing in like the the injustice to mind by carrying yeah. the pack longer than needed but it just allows the person to think like oh man like i might actually get in trouble because he's wanting to take it longer maybe i shouldn't have done this in the first place it's just it's a, it's a cool idea to think about yeah it's a cool picture i enjoyed those episodes from marty yeah so then he moves on to the uh the one who begs uh th- that part Okay, so you've got the one who begs or the one who would borrow from you. First, just kind of point this out, this is not new. You could go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. What are we talking about here? Well, this is the image of overwhelming generosity, a generosity that uh, it may actually encroach on your own wants and needs, or as we've been saying, your own rights and privileges. And so here you have this person, whether they are destitute or uh, in need for uh, any number of different ways, you know, you can you could say that in a sense, it's like they're thrusting their own suffering upon you. I don't mean like, oh, how dare a person need help? I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying that. I mean, we should be looking for those opportunities, but just... It just as you look at the from the principled sense, you see that that's that's a part of it. But again, it's it's just like the the cheek and uh, the the tunic or the cloak, whatever. It's same principle. We have to be willing to respond good for evil and 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 respond to any and every. And I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight this, Samuel. We need to be willing to respond to any and every legitimate request. And I said it that way because it's a segue to my next point, and it's this. Samuel, do any of these illustrations have boundaries? I would really hope so, because if not, I feel like people of God would be characterized as, quote, the people who get walked all over. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. And see, that has, it, it brings problems all its own. And so, you know, the, the question might be something like, should I still give even when I know I'm being taken advantage of? And the answer is, well, maybe, but maybe not. And, and just think, what if by giving to a person who's, it's not legitimate, they're not really in need, they're just taking advantage of you. If you give to them anyway, could you not be prevented then from giving to somebody who's truly in need? And if that happened, which which one is the greater injustice? The person with the true need not being fulfilled, right? Uh, and, and in a sense, for these people who are taking advantage, you know, just trying to, whatever, rip you off, you might even be, in some sense, allowing them to incur an even greater debt with God. Well, that doesn't sound good. Oh, here's another one. Samuel, what if someone slapped my wife's cheek? <laughs> Should I offer up her other one? Doesn't sound like a very good husband. <laughs> it also sounds really dangerous. I'm yeah. just saying. <laughs> so at the same time, that too would be an injustice. 
And we're trying to be a little bit playful with it, but of course, in all of these examples, they're not just black and white, concrete, hard, this is what you got to do. There are boundaries. We have to figure out how to live within these with God, and probably over and over. Instead of thinking of these illustrations as if they're just, you know, that hard black and white kind of a rule, we need to allow them to be guiding principles. They're instructing us on how to be in His image, but we have to practice it and learn it. But again, the moral of the story, be willing to give up our own rights in a situation. This is that righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Yeah, and I, I like what you said, being willing to give up our rights in a situation. And I think another good way to say that in terms of why we're called to do that is that like, God himself, is like his foundation of his uh, essence is built on on justice and righteousness and like you could look at um yeah psalms 89 verse 14 like that verse says righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne and then like that's kind of a big image that god's (laughs) throne is established on justice and then yeah i like what the apostle peter says uh first peter chapter 1 verse 17 he he references God as, quote, one who impartially judges. So I think those yeah. two aspects are really important to keep in mind whenever we're trying to think about foregoing our sense of justice and how that could respond in an evil action or turn of events that could lead to more harm than good because oftentimes our inclination is way more imperfect than God's sense of justice and how he can operate that uh, without blemish. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, if anybody's unsure about the truth of what Samuel just said, come hang out with us for a day or two and you'll see. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next section, uh, we've actually got, again, more from Luke and more from Matthew. Now, I don't know if you guys remember, we kind of mixed up the order of things that were in the book of Luke, we decided to follow Matthew's sequence, and so this is a little bit confused. But you know what? I'm going to go ahead and read them both, uh, just because I think it's it's kind of neat getting the additional perspective here. So this is Luke. I'm going to start reading in chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. It says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Then we're going to skip down to verse 31. And he says this. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, well, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend 
expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, Matthew's is a lot like it, but still, some some different little uh, oddities, whatever, and we're going to go through that. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48. So he says it this way. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in there, but there's also some things that might be a little uh, scary or overwhelming, right? Mm -hmm. So, all right, let's see if we can walk our way through this a little bit. He starts out with, well, there's this whole idea, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, first of all, Samuel, and we're not going to do it. I don't know why I didn't put a bunch of these verses in here this time. But in Leviticus 19.18, we're familiar with this. This is, the, this is the part in the Old Testament where it says to love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the catch. That little part that's added in here, and hate your enemy? Jesus said that, you know, we've heard that that's how it's said. The funny thing is that part, it isn't actually in the Old Testament scripture anywhere. But we do have some writings that would suggest that it was a, you know, semi-popular saying, at least in some circles. Now, the important takeaway here is that my neighbor, who is my neighbor? Could be a friend or he could be a foe. This is just like that story of the Good Samaritan. That's over in Luke 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Or even in the Torah back in Leviticus 19, 34, my neighbor is defined as the one to whom I choose to be neighborly, not those who have already been neighborly toward me. Love your neighbor, but don't, don't hate your enemy. Love your enemy instead. Now, here's, here's the point, though. And, and it says, why are we doing this? To be more like God. That is, sons of your Father in heaven. Now, listen to some of these things. This is kind of, I think it's a combo between Matthew and Luke. Listen to some of these things to be more like God. You have to love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who abuse you. And do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Samuel, is there a simpler list in all the world for us to follow? Uh, I mean... (laughs) Yeah. 
this list goes against everything within us all the time. There, there's not a thing on there except possibly that do unto others. Every once in a while, people, you know, they yeah. they sort of play that one a little bit. All these other ones, oh, nobody's going to do that naturally. No. Man, no way. We hate that stuff. And to hear you say that those aspects are meant to make us more like God, and that could beg the question, like, wait, are you? Are, is Jesus saying that God does that? with his own enemies like what yes he does yes he does and that's that's exactly what that next part was about when the he makes the sun rise uh how does he say it he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and he sends the rain on the just and the unjust see how many humans are enemies of god uh, quite a bit <laughs> Yeah, and you might even argue that at any given moment, it could be all of them. When you are going against his will in any way, so when you sin, in that moment at least, in some sense, you are an enemy of God. Think about this. God treats every human, even the ones who are trying so, so hard to be on his team and those who are trying so, so hard to reject him in every way that they can, fight him in every way that they can, he treats them all with a degree of dignity and respect and care, even though they may be acting as his enemy. So, think of it. Now, I mean, you know, we can, we can get into, you know, what is God capable of and all that kind of stuff, but come on, God, he can do anything. He's actually capable of withholding the sun and the rain from those who oppose him or hate him. I mean, he could actually do that. I don't know what that would look like, but he could do it, but he doesn't. And likewise, we must treat even our enemies with a degree of dignity, respect, and care. And this not only might, but should exceed our social circle, our normal sphere of influence. And You know, if you need a little silver lining, just sort of hold that in the back of your head that, you know what, we know that God delights in repaying those who are good and just. Now, that's not a formula. You can't like say, oh, I did this. God has to do this now. But he delights in it. And so it's a good thing, something to hang on to. So yeah, that list, being more like God, he does it all day, every day, Samuel. Yeah, and maybe it's just my mind that is thinking this. Hope not. Hope this is more of a human reaction response. But so often I think about God only having favor for those who are on his team and for him and everything, and that everybody who is against him or in any way you want to say that they're technically his enemies, that he has nothing to do with them but i don't know this kind of (laughs) brings that into question to some extent yeah and then it makes me think of maybe the why of that and it made me think of another peter reference and this is in second peter chapter three um verses eight through ten well now i'll just do um verse nine and ten he says uh the lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, 
but for all to come to repentance. So, yeah, I don't know. There's a measure of that swirling around in this concept, too. Yeah, it's not to say that God will not treat people, you know, like kind of like what they're asking for. I mean, there are consequences for actions and all those kind of things. But if you were objectively looking at how God treats mankind, all of mankind collectively or each one of them individually, it is so filled with mercy and love and goodness all the time. We just don't recognize it. Yeah, and I mean, that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 that like humanity's primary identity is that yes. we are the cornerstone of his creation and that he declared that to be very good yes. and that he hasn't forgotten that. Yeah, he he's fixing it. He's going to make it true again, if mm-hmm. I could say it that way. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, so he continues with his... Uh, the basic thought process, the one that, you know, your righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. And he has, he adds these little bits. If you want your righteousness to exceed, it's not enough to love those who love you. Even tax tax collectors and sinners do that. It's not enough to do good to those who do good to you. Even sinners do that. It's not enough to greet your brothers. Even the Gentiles do that. And it's not enough to lend to those who you expect can repay. Even sinners do that. See, we have to love our enemies. We have to even do good to them. We have to uh, lend without expecting anything in return. And again, that's how we can be more like him. And again, that's the way that he has treated all of humanity this whole time, the whole story. Now, having said all that, Samuel, uh, just for clarity, question, must I treat everyone, both friend and enemy, exactly the same all the time? I feel like there's a basic set of social circles that differentiate (laughs) how you treat them based on the type of person they are. Yeah, yeah, of course there are, yeah. But here's here's what I think, if we can look at this whole thing, I think what we're getting at. There are some basics. There's dignity, just a, a general respect and care that we should offer every single human being just because they are in the image of God. And so, in those basic areas... Yeah, we should be treating everyone exactly the same. Well, what about the guy that's, you know, doing this or that to me? Yep, treat him basic dignity and respect. What about uh, the serial killer? You know, (laughs) well, assuming your hypothetical ever becomes real, (laughs) then yeah, being a human being means that he is in the image of God and there is the most basic dignity and respect that even they should receive from us. I'm not even going to say they deserve it. I'm just going to say that they should receive from us. And so we have to be impartial in that way. However, what you were getting at, Samuel, aren't there other areas, though, where we're not going to treat friend and enemy the same? And, and of course we won't. It's okay 
to show some partiality to, let's say, friends or maybe family, if you get along with your family, and you go beyond those basics that we were talking about, just dignity, respect, care, that kind of thing. And you will go beyond those basics with some and not with others. And Samuel, doesn't God do that too? Doesn't he do what? Treat some people differently than others in certain areas? Well, yeah. I mean, look at the nation of Israel itself. Right. Yeah, exactly. They're called out, chosen, right, all of that. And so all we're talking about is doing exactly what God does. He causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on everybody, right? Basic dignity, respect, etc. But he also blesses those who are obedient and will stand against those who are not, right? So, so you see that both things live together in him, and, and we have to do that as well. Yet, yeah, I feel like and with the point that you just ended, um, maybe what a lot of people do when they're thinking about those egregious or truly evil cases of human behavior as an example of like, well, am I supposed to love them too? I Because I think maybe people's tendency who who haven't committed acts as egregious as that is their response almost treats that person as less than human yeah, or almost they, they turn that person into like an animal or a beast or something. Yeah. And maybe, yeah. maybe Jesus and what we're building off of is to say like, you can still uphold the dignity of their humanity, but be able to call out how broken they are. And how much yeah. they need help, but that doesn't yeah. mean that you have to put place yourself higher up above them because of what they've done and how bad it is. Like that, that breaks that basic dignity. Whenever you're you're changing the height difference between you and that other person, that's such a great point. In everything that we're saying, we are definitely not saying that you endorse anything about them or condone anything about their behavior or fill in the blank with whatever word you want. It's nothing like that, but it's exactly as you described, just the humanness. Good, good point. I like it. So there's one more little bit, though, Samuel, we should touch on. He ends with, uh, well, okay, Luke says merciful, but we'll go with Matthew's because it's more controversial. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Just make this clear. This should not be understood as without any flaw or imperfection. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that you are sinless. And, and I know I've heard people talk about this, so I think this one is, is fairly popular. When you see this word perfect, a lot of people will tell you, well, you know, it's more like complete right? Complete or finished, something like that. And that is a much better way to understand this. Uh, other words might be mature. Uh, we said complete. Uh, whole is another one. And I, I want to I try to paint a little mental picture because I, at least it helped me. I'm hoping maybe it'll help somebody else. Just imagine, if you will, a machine. And imagine if this machine was all assembled And at some point, you would say, it's done. It's no longer missing any parts. And then you might use those words, like this machine is now mature or complete 
or whole or finished, right? And so we, in a sense, we have to to try to get to that point where we're also not missing any parts. Because if that were the case, then like a machine, we could, you know, run properly. We could we could run consistently or regularly. We we could run effectively. We could accomplish the thing that we were built for. And so when you think about Jesus, what he's teaching, and especially here, this Sermon on the Mount, you sort of put those things together, and the idea is that it's to help you no longer be missing any parts. And I think a kind of a cool thing is that it's the same role that the Torah is supposed to play in the whole big story. If If you take it on, understand it, learn from it, you too will no longer be missing any parts. And I, I think that that's a cool per, uh, picture. Be perfect as your father is perfect. You know, try to try to get all the little piece parts together so that you, as a machine, can run. You can you you know walk and live and move in God's image. And just remember that you know God calls some men righteous, even though they are not without sin. Well, in the same way, you could be called perfect, even though you're not without flaws. But you're you're a whole machine. You're a running machine, an operating machine. So. I don't know. Does that help you? Help me. Yeah, it's kind of like saying that you have more of the law written on your heart on this side of you know the kingdom and the world to come. It, it's it's become yeah. more of an organic part of your identity um, in your completeness of character rather than it's something that you're struggling with so much or that you're experiencing noticeable amounts of tension friction with adhering to what god says is the way to love him and love your neighbor yeah and again it sounds like such a command right you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect wow i feel like a failure (laughs) just like that but i think it'd be much better to understand and I, you know, I'm going to paraphrase it now. You therefore must be constantly pursuing perfection, being perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah, I, I know that. I know this because we've already talked about it in a separate conversation. There's another way of looking at this, and I know this is probably less popular in your opinion, but I kind of like the parallels just especially with what Jesus said in verse verses 46 and 47. This is another Marty nugget. He connected it to one of the commandments in Leviticus, in Leviticus 19, verse 2, whenever he's, uh, God says to Moses to tell the people, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Um, and another way of thinking about holiness is being set apart from the normal or the ordinary. Yeah. And I do think that that's kind of applicable with what we talked about with what Jesus is saying, like comparing like followers of the teacher with like the scribes or the Pharisees or the tax collectors or the sinners. Like he's showing examples of what it means to be set apart, but of asking yourself, well, how are you any different than any other average Joe around you? Like, Right. Are you loving people outside of your normal circles? Are you 
doing good to those who aren't doing good to you because the normal way is easy. Like even the the bad people do that. So I don't know. I think that you can kind of connect it to that way to say like, be set apart, be different, like almost be peculiar in a sense that people notice that there is a change in the way that you treat your fellow man that is not the way that most do. Yeah. No, I think that's a good connection. It's a good connection. And boy, you know what? Do both. Yep. (laughs) Be perfectly holy. (laughs) As if it wasn't overwhelming enough already. (laughs) But hey, you may as well. Who was it said it just the other day? If you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's keep moving. I think we can do one more little section. We'll be pushing it tight, but we always do. Why not? Let's do it. Uh, We're going to go on in Matthew. We're going to chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Ooh, this one sounds good. All right, so let's talk about what we got here. First, it says, beware of practicing your righteousness. What is practicing righteousness? Sam, you got a guess? Uh, Doing the mitzvot. Yes, doing everything that you get from the instructions in the Torah. Everything that applies to you. And uh, we could all, this is everything that Jesus is teaching, especially right here. We're in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount. And this is, I'm going to say it again, the teaching how you your righteousness can exceed that of scribes and Pharisees. So think about some of the things he's talked about so far. Choosing, let's call it scarcity in this life and for abundance in the, in the kingdom, the next life, right? So you'll be truly blessed. Uh, being salt and light, uh, fulfilling the law, building fences around Torah. We talked about that with murder and adultery. Being faithful in covenants, uh, marriage with God, whatever being a person of character, simple yeses and nos, being willing to forego your own rights, turning the cheek, etc., choosing love over retaliation, and we're not even done. There's way more to come. But this is all, if not, not talking about these things, not understanding these things, but practicing these things. It's good. So that's what practicing righteousness is. That's how we start this thing. But what's he talking about? In order to be seen. Well, first of all, let's note this. It doesn't say to beware of your righteousness being seen. It says to beware of doing it in order to be seen. Okay, sure. Logically, there there are some reasons where we might try to keep things a little more quiet or unseen or secret or whatever, whether it's avoiding praise for yourself or protecting the recipient's dignity, uh, that kind of stuff, whatever it might be. But 
It isn't the seeing or the not seeing that's the problem. It's the heart behind it. If you are seeking esteem from men instead of God, well, then you're just outright forfeiting your heavenly reward. It's it's a bad move. If you were playing chess, it would be mate and it wouldn't be yours. You'd be in trouble. So another one, he says, when you give to the needy. Now, first of all, there's a couple of cool things here. Jesus is, he's kind of summarizing this whole idea of practicing righteousness, which we just painted as this gigantic picture. And now he's summarizing it down to this single phrase, giving to the needy. This was actually a very common thing in Jesus's day. Practicing righteousness was often referred to simply as charity. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's that, that kind of thing, right? But then notice, it doesn't say, if you give. What does it say, Samuel? It says, when. When you give. It's totally expecting you to do this stuff. Charity, just to point this out, it's the first, that, like Jesus is going to do a little group of three things here that kind of work together. Charity is the first in this group. Uh, and we'll talk about it more as we go. Uh, but just want you to notice that. Charity is the first. Oh my gosh, there's so much in here, Samuel. Here's another thing. The word hypocrites, all right? Don't disappoint me, Samuel. (laughs) What do we normally say a hypocrite is? What's the defining characteristic of a hypocrite? It's kind of like a two-faced person. They say one thing, but then they turn around in a different context and do something completely different. Exactly. Yeah, somebody who's not practicing what they preach, right? That's a at least a common church way of saying it. <laughs> but I'm just going to say it. That's just wrong. I mean, it's correct today, but it has nothing to do with the word hypocrite the way you see it in your Bible. It would be so much better if you you'd get this in your head. Understand, in our Bibles, when somebody says hypocrite, what they mean is somebody who does something for attention or praise. Almost like an actor. Yeah, they're showing off. They're, 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 notice me, right? Or uh, what's the other one? Well, enough about you. Let's talk about me. <laughs> so that's what a hypocrite is. And what's funny is as we keep reading, every time we say it and you remember that, that definition, you'll just be like, oh my gosh, that's so, that's so clear. It makes so much sense. So anyway, it's someone who does something for attention or praise. Uh, another one, sounding trumpets versus uh, doing things in secret. Well, the, the people sounding the trumpets, you know, they want things to be public and open and unclassified and revealed and overt and acknowledged. I couldn't think of any more words. It's kind of like, look how great I am. But this is versus, you know, doing things in secret. And, and this, it looks more like wanting to remain private or hidden or confidential or concealed or covert or unacknowledged. And it's more along the lines of, what? Who? Me? No, nothing to see here, right? It's like there... Okay, important point. There is a sphere of public religious practice. That's very real. And it's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. And we shouldn't do away with it. It's an important part of the whole big picture. But there is also a sphere of private religious practice. This is also a good thing. The important point is there's balance. Samuel, I'm going to have you read another bit from Matthew 
Uh, but this time we're going back to something we've already read because this is this. I'm trying to explain what I mean about balance. So Matthew five sixteen, read that for us. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Well, which is it? Am I supposed to let them see my good works so that they give glory to a father in heaven? Or am I supposed to keep it all secret? Classic answer. Yes, both. But it's, it's a balancing act. I mean, you shouldn't work so hard to keep everything secret that you're unable to get anything done. At the same time, you should never be doing anything so that people can see what's going on. But it's going to happen, and it's okay. The point is not, it's all about your heart, your motivation, right? Not the seen or unseen bit, right? So there, anyway, it's a balancing act. There's public religious practice and there's private religious practice. That's all we're talking about. Yeah. Some people desire for them to be seen so that their character can hopefully result in some type of change in someone else's someone else's life versus yeah. someone wanting to be seen for the sake of being seen. Yeah. If you think about it, it's easy. You you'll know what we're saying. It's it's, it's easy. But okay, Samuel, I'm going to make a bold statement. It's important that we hear this. Practicing righteousness will result in reward. That you can take to the bank. See how I slipped that in there with the reward? (laughs) But here's the thing. The important question that we have to answer for ourselves is, from whom do we wish to be rewarded? You can have your reward now, or you can very intentionally seek a better reward from God himself. How much better? Well, I would say it like this. Comparatively, if you want your reward from men, you can have your your 10 cents, your dime. You can have that now. Or if you want your reward from God, you can have your billions of dollars later. Which do you want? But it's important. Practicing righteousness will result in reward. And now, Samuel, we've never done this before, but we're going to offer extra credit to the audience. (laughs) Okay? Okay. Our righteous acts, everything we've been talking about here, they clearly earn reward or merit with God. I kind of feel like the text has been very clear about that. So now I'm challenging the audience to go back and try to reconcile or understand what's really being said in Isaiah 64, 6. And that's the little bit about our righteous acts are as filthy rags. It's It's a tough extra credit. But they are up to the challenge. Oh, yeah. We've prepared the way. They got this. Yeah. Nah, it's a good one. All right. I have one thing left. You got anything before I go down this path? I do. Um, I wanted to say it. this aspect of, let's see, doing things in secret versus doing things within the public eye. I, I hope this isn't an oversimplification, but it almost feels like the difference between instant gratification and delayed gratification concerning the things of God. And uh, that thought led me to Hebrews, um, the Hall of Faith in chapter 11, the the writer of Hebrews lists off all of these monumental figures in God's story, 
and the promises that he gave them and how they responded faithfully. But at the end of that chapter, um, oh no, where? Oh, okay. But at the end of the chapter, Hebrews eleven thirty nine, he says, and all these having gained approval through their faith, they did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So it's like this aspect of (laughs) God has something better in store for you through the weight rather than getting that, that gratification, that satisfaction in the moment that maybe in the end is way more shallow than what God has in store. Um, yeah. And then really quickly, this, I didn't, I've never thought about it before until now, but this, this aspect of Jesus mentioning a trumpet, uh, this is chapter six, verse two, thus when you give to the needy sound, no trumpet before you. And if you connect that with like the instant gratification of getting a trumpet blown in the present when you give versus uh, thinking about the scenario, what would be the delayed gratification trumpet? And that sent me to uh, Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, let's see, where is that at? Oh, yeah, he, he's he's showing a picture of the future of what that delayed gratification trumpet is like. He says, behold, this is in 15, starting in verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet yeah. will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. Yeah. So we have to pick our trumpet yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, those are good references, Sam. That's good stuff. All right. Uh, I'm going to do one more bit. I'll, I'll kind of push through it quickly because, uh, we care about people's time, even though you'd never believe that. But <laughs> uh, it's that last little phrase. Uh, well, it wasn't the last one, but he says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I got this from, uh, again, another one from Daniel Lancaster. This is in his Chronicles of Messiah, page 506. And all he's re- doing is actually repeating something from Maimonides. It's a guy from the past. Don't worry about that. But this is so cool because we're talking about charity. We're talking about all these things. He lists eight ascending levels of charity and says that each one is more meritorious than the previous. And so I thought this would be interesting for people to hear. So I'm going to run through these eight. Ready? So the first one is you give, but you give sadly and reluctantly. But then the next one is you give and okay, maybe you're giving less than what's appropriate or fitting, but you give cheerfully. And then the next one is you give, but only after being asked. And then the next one is you give before being asked. And then the next one is you give without knowing who is receiving it. A quick little side note here. We're talking about measures of anonymity. Uh, maybe possibly using third parties or something like that. But what I'd really like for people to do is not get the idea in their head that they're giving to, you know, United Way or something. No, no big organizations. We're talking about still personal local stuff, but giving 
without knowing who's receiving it. And then the next highest one is give so that the receiver doesn't know who gave it, another form of anonymity. And now here's the really relevant one. You give without knowing who's receiving and so that the receiver doesn't know who gave it. Now that one is the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, right? It's kind of cool. But then the final one, and this is where he gets you. This is the trickery. You ready? Don't give it all. What? What? (laughs) Yeah. Instead, do things like lend to them so that they can they can work their way out of it themselves or maybe employ them or maybe you would even partner with them in a business or maybe you could help them in starting their own business the point is you don't give so much as you help them pick themselves up but those are the eight things the eight levels of meritorious giving of charity that kind of thing i just thought it was a cool picture i wanted to share it before we go yeah now one of them is a brain buster for me Uh, level seven give without knowing who is receiving and so that the receiver doesn't know who gave it how how is that even possible is it like you go okay you go into a place and you put some money down on a table you don't know who's going to get it, and nah. that person... Okay, no, sir, a real example. Samuel, let's say that somebody walks up to you at work, or maybe while we're doing a little one of our meetings or something like that, and they go, oh, man, there's just, there's just this guy I know, and they start telling you the story, all this stuff, and they won't share the name because they want to kind of protect them. But you hear about their circumstance, and you're like, you know what? I want to help. And so you do whatever you're able to do to help this person. You've, you've heard their story. The person wasn't telling you the story. It's, it's your friend who's telling you about them. And when you give them the money, you say, oh, and by the way, please, I don't know if I know them or don't know them, whatever, but you know what? Please don't tell them where this came from. If you want to take credit for it, fine. If you want to say it came from somebody else, fine, whatever. But let's just keep it. I don't, I don't want them to know. Well, you have no idea who you're giving it to. And now they don't know where it's coming from. It's very simple. Real life example, yeah? I think that makes a little more sense. Yeah. And you just had your left hand not knowing what your right hand is doing. (laughs) It's kind of good. Yeah. Sweet. We ready to leave our audience to start on their extra credit? Yes, I think they have been charitable enough in listening to us. (laughs) So let's call it. We're done. Okie dokie. Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Please don't forget to hit the subscribe button so that you are notified when our episodes release on Sundays at 7 p.m. We also would really love it if you would leave us a rating and a review on your podcasting app to let us know how this content is positively impacting your life. Our podcast is now available on all podcasting platforms, so please make sure you check us out on your electronic device. And you can also visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or comments we'd love to hear from you, please send them to okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we hope and pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed 
rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.